Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. So, uh, yeah, hey, I'm Nate. I'm here with Aaron. It is, we're recording, boy, I think we've got three recording sessions this week just for the podcast. It's midweek. I now am, you know, I kind of gauge my week. I don't know what you do, Aaron, but I kind of gauge my week around Thursday because Thursday night is when I've got my local meeting that I can go to. Oh, yeah. In Columbia. And uh, I'm I'm so excited because uh, last weekend, Allie and I and custom, uh, some company that we had made our first visit to the new McCreary's Irish Pub uh, that's opened around the corner from where we have our new Columbia meeting. Which for those so, of you, th- those of you that don't know Samson Lore, the McCreary's in Franklin was the first place that the meeting after the meeting happened in the first Samson uh, right. group. And now they have opened in your neck of the woods just because you moved there. They called and said, where'd you move? And, you know, they only had one location before this. But they're That's like, right, yeah. damn it, we need we need pirate monks if we're going to open a McCreary's pub. <laughs> so I'm excited uh, for tomorrow night. I'm going to go. There's going to be now. Here's what I know. We're going to have some new guys tomorrow night. The group is, is gaining ground fairly quickly. Uh, and I also know that unless those guys maybe have some 12 step experience, they, uh, probably are going to struggle a little bit when it comes to the sharing time, because, uh, we do things a little bit different in the meeting and for a reason, man, part of me wants to come down. I know you're going to make this transition, but I'm just thinking right now, I got to come to town on Friday, mm-hmm. uh, for the intensive this weekend at Samson Harbor. I kind of just want to come early so I can. I'll spend the night you? there on Thursday. I I might. I mean, I'm come on and my just sleep at the harbor. Or, yeah, that's sleep uh, at the harbor or sleep sleep at our place. I, I want to yeah. break in the harbor a little bit more, but uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm all of a sudden my my wheels are turning. I okay. have some I have some prep cooking to do, but I could just do that on Friday at the at the yeah. harbor. Yeah. Okay. Go on. You were saying guys are going to feel uncomfortable with the meeting format. Well, yeah. Not, well, they're not probably just different. No. It's different because they're probably used to, first of all, the standard Bible study. Mm. Uh, and this is not a Bible study. Uh, we do our best to, to do what we do in a, in a biblical way, but it's not a Bible study. Uh, and they're probably used to discussing ideas, concepts, uh, and, and then maybe telling third-person stories. Not mm. used to a lot of self-disclosure. Um, so, uh, so let's let's define re- third-person narratives when somebody yeah. is sharing. Yeah, what what does that mean practically? Give me an example of a third-person sharing that might happen at a meeting. Well, it could be that I just tell a story about somebody else, or I relate. You know. Uh, 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 you know, yeah, it, and it's it's secondhand, and and I think, hey, it's going to help these other people, so I will share this story. But it's not tied at all at to my personal experience, or and not at least not to today's personal experience. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, so the other way we can do it is wait, we wait, can let's, generalize. Let's, let's stick with that first. So principle yeah, yeah. one is growing up in the church, one of the things I experienced was things are told in testimony form. So it's not right. talking about me and it's not talking about now. I share mm-hmm. things that have already been fixed by God. And so I'm sharing it was bad back then. Now it's better. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's got to be a success story. Right. It's got to be a success story. And and so right, that's right. not that's not tonight and now, which is what we're shooting mm-hmm. for in a meeting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you're going to talk about generalizing. Yeah. Generalizing. So, uh, yeah. So I will make vague global statements without getting pers- uh, uh, particular and personal. Talk in the past tense rather than the present tense. And then in the second person or the third person rather than in the first person. So I wind up talking about you or we. You know, when you do this or, you know, uh, when, when things happen, you know, what you kind of think or what we got. And it doesn't get, I don't, I'm not taking ownership. Yeah. Okay. So we call this weeing on people. Right. Don't, yeah. it's, it's always uncomfortable when you just wee on a stranger. I mean, trust yeah, me, yeah. I've, I've experienced this. I've been arrested for it. You just can't wee on people exactly. for no reason. Uh, if they get, you know, stung by a jellyfish, maybe I've heard that's a myth, yeah. but possibly. Yeah. But and yeah. What? And then the other mistake that we make uh, that, uh, that is often made by newcomers to meetings is somebody says something that is very vulnerable and perhaps comes across as less than hopeful and triumphant. Maybe they're giving voice to sadness or anger or disappointment or despair or fear. And somehow the newcomer has this impulse that I've got to fix this person now. So I'm going to address my comments to this guy and I'm going to tell him something that will make him feel better or somehow change. I'm going to give him new information. I'm going to instruct him. I'm going to encourage him or maybe I'm going to reprove him in, in some way. Which we call crosstalk. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so I'm glad you brought that one up as well. And mm-hmm. and I want to go back to the generalized one. But uh, yeah. I, I was in a meeting where a guy asked uh, a great question, what constitutes crosstalk? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes, you know, you might share a couple people before I share. Yeah. And what you say triggers something in me. It's yeah. perfectly all right for me to say, Man, when Nate was sharing, that really brought something up in me. That's not yes. crosstalk because I'm going no. to me. I'm not talking yeah. about, you know, Nate said this. And I feel like, you know, if he really understood that John 14 <laughs> says, <laughs> now that's crosstalk. I'm, yeah, I'm now uh, fixing his statement or him. Right, yeah. So it's perfectly okay. It's, it's not like we're disconnected people in a meeting. Right. We're in it together. Yeah. And yeah. so we can certainly acknowledge one another. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that was great that that uh, a new fellow asked that before he shared because he didn't want to mm-hmm. crosstalk and so he yeah. wanted that clarified. Um, I want to talk about the you and me statements because I know that is something that I can automatically desire to do. It makes things feel safer if I mm-hmm. include everybody else in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, over the I don't know, how many years have we been doing these meetings? 15 years or something? Yeah. yeah. It's been uh, a lot uh, of years. Eight, eight, 18 years now. So first is if you have been in meetings for a long time and you've learned to be cleaner in your language, 
you might, like I do, feel a little frustrated when new people come in and they're doing mm-hmm. a lot of yous and wees. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I hear somebody say, you know, when you go and, and then they say something, my the thought mm-hmm. in my head is, wait, are you telling me what I'm doing? Or are you telling me what you're doing? Why mm-hmm. I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and, and so it can be hard to be patient and say, okay, certain guys haven't learned this language. But I think the bigger thing for me personally is I catch myself still wanting to wee on people when I'm talking. Mm-hmm. And because Samson has given me the opportunity to work on that filter, every time I catch myself almost saying we when I'm talking mm-hmm. about me and I have to stop and say, no, I, and then start the sentence again, mm-hmm. my level of vulnerability, something that changes, I feel it in my gut when I mm-hmm. stop myself from saying we and move to an I is transformative and powerful for everything the Samson meeting supposed to be for my sake. And yes. it happens every time I catch myself at the verge of a we. Like it's mm-hmm. just starting to trickle. This is just going yeah. to be an absolute being <laughs> metaphor throughout. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to, I I wanted to encourage guys in that mm-hmm. because it's not just keeping other people safe, which it is. When we mm-hmm. speak for ourselves, everybody else is safe, listening and backing mm-hmm. us up. When mm-hmm. we start using the we's and the use, then people, even if they don't know it, kind of start getting defensive. Like you're now trying to tell my story, but you don't know my story, mm-hmm. and it causes us to back up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so it is good for the people in the room, but even more so, at least in my life, it's amazingly helpful for me to learn how to be a little more honest, which is never an easy thing. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm grateful to 12-step recovery because it's in the rooms of 12-step recovery that I first learned this way of sharing and these basic rules of safety. We have a guest coming up who also found her feet in recovery, uh, in 12-step recovery, uh, and, uh, and in the process discovered a faith that is vibrant and real and inspiring. You're going to love Paula. And you'll meet her when we get back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Our guest today, joining us from someplace in the wilds of Michigan, is author, uh, speaker, podcaster, Paula Jausch. Uh, Welcome, Paula. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Welcome. And you did amazing on my job. You already earned a point. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Paula, you describe yourself as a, a survivor of family trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And you, t- you, you talk a lot and uh, communicate. I help a lot of people navigate uh, the white water of family trauma and find a way to peace and healing. Uh so I'm wondering if you could maybe start by telling us your story. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to me, trauma is such a, a sticky topic. You know, I like to say trauma is mm-hmm. the greatest mission field of the 21st c- century, but the most misunderstood mm-hmm. issue of our day. 
And for the long time, I had a story to tell, but because of childhood trauma, I couldn't put all those pieces together. And the longer that I've stayed in recovery, I'm starting to see that trauma plays a huge part in the addiction, you know, the addiction Mm -hmm. piece, you know, it's like, there's a piece of us that feels broken. There's a piece of us that feels like there's something wrong with us, but we just don't know how to pinpoint it. Right. And so Mm -hmm. when we get like feeling out of control or like we need to get relief, we're running to whatever this addiction is. Mm -hmm. But the reason I decided to, um, name my book cross addicted breaking free from family trauma and addiction. It was because I was just exposed to addiction from the time I was born. Right. So that's part of my mm-hmm. story. I grew up in a small town in Indiana on a small farm. My father was an alcoholic and he was a drug addict. Mm-hmm. He was diagnosed. I learned later in life with bipolar and schizophrenic. And so when mm-hmm. I was six years old, um, my dad's like, we're going to burn the house down today. And so he burned the house down and we watched the house burn and um, it was to, wow. Yeah. So I just remember as a little girl, the heat and I was thinking, oh, this is cool. This is normal. We're just burning the house down today. But my dad, <laughs> my dad, ex- but many things like that happened in my life and we could laugh mm-hmm. about it today, but really I thought this was normal. So he did no. that to collect insurance money and we were going to Vegas, you know? And so we packed up the six kids and we moved to Las Vegas and it was the middle of my third grade year. It was a huge culture shock because um, we lived in a small, small community, pretty much all white community. And then once we got to Vegas, my dad moved me into like a very diverse neighborhood, a lot of drugs, Mm -hmm. gang population. And my dad's addiction got worse um, with rock, Mm -hmm. cocaine, hard drugs. And, he just kept getting in trouble and he got in trouble with the law. And then my mother discovered gambling when we got to Las Vegas and there were six of us kids. So Mm -hmm. she started numbing by just staying at the casinos for weeks after weeks. And then my dad Mm -hmm. gets in trouble with the law. He ends up going to prison for attempted murder um, because he got in a physical altercation with a police officer. And long story short, my dad was shot, but he lived, but I experienced that. So house burnt down, mm-hmm. father being shot. Oh, this is just normal. You know, this is how my parents mm-hmm. roll, you know, but what happened, mm-hmm. but what happened was, is when my mom's addiction got worse and my father's addiction got worse, I just, in school, I couldn't learn, you know, I'm sitting in a sixth grade and I can't read. I'm sitting in seventh grade yeah. and I can't read. And by that time, you know, because there was a lot of abuse at home and addiction, you know, I was plagued always with what is wrong with me, you know, what is wrong with Mm -hmm. me. And then by the time I probably my middle of my seventh grade year, when my dad went to prison, there was just so much anger in me that you couldn't keep me in my chair. I was fighting teachers. Mm -hmm. I was fighting students, anybody I could fight. And then what had happened was when my parents' addictions got worse, I got introduced to drugs, the streets, the gangs. And I started using at the age 13 drugs and alcohol, but hardcore drugs. And um, mm-hmm. I got I got pregnant at 15, started getting really involved into the gang violence, got pregnant at 16, 18, an addiction, 19, 21, just looking for love in all the wrong places. And um, mm-hmm. the the father can of I, can I can I I pause to ask you a question in there. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing this, the story of, of a girl that uh, didn't have any security at home. And 
the conversations I've had with people who have gravitated towards gangs where they have been available, it was such a surrogate family, mm-hmm. despite the dysfunction within that culture. Like, give me a little of what that was offering you as a teenager. Oh, my gosh. Security, food, mm-hmm. um, acceptance. Mm-hmm. You know, I just came back from Texas last week and I spoke at a woman's prison. And this is my second prison that I've spoken and what happened, I, sh- I shared my story um, this mm-hmm. past week, and the women that sto- stood up, like, they're like, well, my parents were addicts. I went to the gangs. I felt accepted. I had a family. I was exposed to things I shouldn't have been exposed to, but then I got into drugs, and then I lost my children. And my story mm-hmm. is break that cycle of generational trauma and addiction, right? So my point of you saying, yes. Usually, the more that I speak and the more that I learn about people and myself is you don't have a family. You're just looking for a place to belong. And what this gang life did to me was if I'm a young girl who's 13 and alone, you're going to teach me how to steal food. You're going to teach me how to steal clothes. You're going to teach me how to survive. And that's what they actually mm-hmm. did. So absolutely, you know, we could look at these gang members and be like, you're just a thug. But for me, I look at a gang member and I'm like, okay, you didn't have a daddy. You didn't have a mommy. You know, you have no life skills because part of my story, and if you read my book, is I was illiterate until the age 21. I mean, Mm -hmm. I started meeting mentors and sponsors in a recovery program that I could finally say, like, there's something wrong with me. I can't even read. My sponsor Mm -hmm. to this day, she'll be 80 in April, but she's been sponsoring me for 22 years. Wow. But this woman from a 12 step recovery program, like literally saved my life. Mm-hmm. Like, and mm-hmm. she, to this day, like my parents are deceased because they dry, died early. And I believe it's because of their addiction. But my sponsor, who I call my mom, my spiritual mom, she's like my family, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I hope that answer. that's a long answer to your question. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, that's actually, <laughs> quite, it's kind of interesting. We talk a lot about community and the importance of community oh. in in our spiritual lives and recovery lives, but really it's just another gang, just one that is seeking to give Healthier. much better tools and <laughs> love and intimacy, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's, it's that same longing. So, all right, bridge the gap between this teenager and, you know, we've said you got into recovery, but there's a rock bottom in between those two stories. Yep. And I was getting to my rock bottom, but I'm going to comment on, you know, yes, there is this family in the recovery program, but you know what? One, I, I want to say this because I think it's really, really important for women in recovery and men to hear when you're first in recovery and you're unhealthy, you tend to still attract the unhealthy. So be very careful. Yeah. Just, fo- just focus on your recovery <laughs> until you get yelling, please. So I had to yeah. throw that in there. My, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. my sponsor always told me water seeks its own level. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? You're, you've been telling me that for years. She goes, the healthier you get, the healthier that you will attract people. And she would always tell me, your picker's broken. Stay away from men right now. Your picker's broken. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but what happened to me is, you know, I started using drugs and alcohol at the age 13 and I had three children by the time I was 21 and I, I lost a couple children, but I hit rock bottom. I just knew I couldn't live like this anymore. Um, I was still with the gang member. These were his three children and I was being physically abused. Like the similarities of what my dad did to me, he was doing to me. And, um, 
it was hard for me to get a job because I couldn't read. And when I went into an interview after high school, I ended up graduating from alternative education. It was a behavior program. They didn't know what to do with me. I went to try to get a job and they're like, ma'am, you have a problem with speaking and writing. But that was the first time in my life I walked out with my head wrong. Like, I think there's something wrong with me, but I just don't know what it is. And I think a lot of people that come into recovery, when they start to question, I think there's something wrong with me. I think that's where true mm -hmm. recovery actually begins, right? Because we start to ask mm -hmm. the questions. I'm ready to get to know myself. So I walked out of the interview like there's something wrong with me. And I remember being 21 years old and the father of my kids was very abusive. And it was a night of him being abusive. But I just went into the closet and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm done. And um, somebody I had met kept sharing their faith with me, you know, that God had a plan for my life. And I'm like, I don't want to hear that. You know, you don't know my story. You don't know where I come from. And she shared that message with me when I was 18. So when I was 21 years old and I went into the closet to take my life, my son, who I had at 15, he was six. He opened the door and he's like, I hate you, mommy. All you do is cry. And I was sitting in the closet floor and I'm like, well, I'm out of here. I'm done. Because what happens is sometimes our pain becomes so great. We don't even care about like our kids anymore, which is a really, mm -hmm. really sad place to be. But what happened was, is when I went to take my life, that woman's voice wouldn't get out of my head. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really interrupting my plan. So God kind of has a way of doing that. And I just punched the floor and I said, all right, God, if you're if you're real, who are you? I want to know you. And I just I just started punching the floor and I said, I heard, get up, get up. You're not going to be like your parents. Get up. And um, I walked into my first recovery meeting when I was 22 years old. I'm, I'm 46 today. And um, I might no, I walked in when I was like 24. Um, so it was 22 years ago. And I just remember sitting in that meeting and I don't even remember anything. But I do remember telling the women, I don't want to live anymore. And um, I'm suicidal. You know, I was I was just asking for help. And most people don't do this in a 12 step program. But there's a woman and she's no longer living. She got out of her chair and she came over on the 12 step recovery table. This was a woman stag meeting. And she hit the table. She says, don't you ever talk like that again in this meeting. Do you understand me? God has a plan for your life. And so at the end of that meeting, this woman stopped me in her tracks and she was a FBI agent. And she had a business card. She goes, here's my card. And so I uh, picked up the 500 pound phone, not knowing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, for 22 years, I've talked to that same woman. And her first words to me were, you are already enough. And one day you're going to learn this. And so I have a box of T-shirts over here. And my, my sponsor is still alive today, but I'm getting T-shirts that say you are enough. I'm like, if I'm going to give a message to the world, that's what I'm going to give. Because my sponsor gave me that message. And she literally said it for 13 to 15 years until I would get deep into my soul. So I picked up myself that day. I went to 12-step recovery and I haven't looked back. You know, I haven't looked back, but then um, I also found a Christian church, which, you know, I grew up Catholic going on maybe Easter or Christmas once in a while. And I found a church where I started getting my kids plugged in, but I came from such brokenness and I came from such a gang background that when I went into that Christian church, I had a half shirt on. I had really short shorts on. I had a lot of piercings and tattoos 
and somebody kind of mm-hmm. scooched me in the room and I didn't know why, but I do now. I was, I wasn't um, dressed appropriately for church, but what happened mm-hmm. is that church became my family as well. And for seven mm-hmm. years, people took me underneath their wings and, um, I just was able to get real with my sponsor and I ended up going to Walmart and getting a calculator because I was illiterate and I would put words in this calculator and it would tell me how to say it and it would tell me the definition. And so for like the first year of my recovery, I became a sponge. It was like, will you mentor me? Can you teach me life skills? Can you teach me how to read? Like in the church, I was just begging people just to help me. And so when you see cross addicted, one day I was in the shower and God said, cross addicted for your book. And I'm like, God, I'm not going to write a book. I don't have the skills to do that. He says, you're going to take my people who got multiple addictions, Paula, like you did to become addicted to um, the cross of Christ. And, um, and then, so that's where the title came from. And then breaking free from family trauma and addiction, because I had to break the cycle and I had to learn what was normal and what was not normal. And so I had to find people in the church and I had to find people in the recovery program who had what I wanted. And I had to keep kind of following them. Like, what do you have? How do you get this? And, you know, let's just get this out there right now. There's people in the church and recovery program who are still you know, in their disease or they're still sick or they're still broken. Right. But when you see somebody in the program or the church who's got what you want, Don't be ashamed to go up and say, hey, you got something that I want. Can you lead me? That's such a huge part of recovery that I think isn't talked about a lot um, because often it's so focused on a behavior. But I know in my life, it's that insanity of I've started to create a world that is not actually the world I'm living in, but it's become the filter through which I see stuff and it's Mm -hmm. just not Mm -hmm. true or right. And how important it is that other people reflect back what real life is who are sober minded, like Mm -hmm. forget the not sober in the body. It's Mm -hmm. not being sober minded becomes a scary thing. And how cool that when you showed up in your short shorts and your crop top shirt, that you were not pushed away and you were not rejected. Um, because for that young woman that walked in, you were dressed mm-hmm. perfectly appropriate. You were mm-hmm. saying, here's where I'm at. Are you going to mm-hmm. love me? Mm-hmm. I, I am wearing the uniform of the person who believes you're going to reject me. Now, what are you yeah. going to do? Yeah. yeah. So good for them for not rejecting you. Well, the cool part about it is like there's like a teacher that I remember and then there's the woman's name in the church I remember. And what's ironic, I can remember exactly what they look like and I can remember their first and last name. But there's not too many people I'll remember their first and last names. But the one who accepted me, like my sponsor, the woman in the church by the name of Tracy Sorison, who accepted me and mentored me for years. And the teacher who saw me my senior year and said, I think you have trauma and you need help. I remember their first and last names, you know? And so that's really spoke volumes to me in my recovery program is that people just want to be seen. Mm -hmm. They just, they just want Mm -hmm. to be accepted right where they are. And what I've learned in my recovery process and my healing of trauma process is that you, if you accept people right where they are, then you can help them to find their true self, right? You can help some, but you can't help all because the person who actually wants the help has to be willing and ready. Right. Well, I, I think there's a mental hurdle for both just Christians in the world and folks in recovery that 
if you've walked through something for 20 years and you've come to a whole lot of epiphanies, I don't know why. And I'll, I'll just say I, as if other people don't do this, but it's totally a whole lot of people that do this. I'm, I look at somebody's thought patterns and I'm like, well, that's just wrong. You need to see it like this. You need to think of it like this. I forget how many years it took for me to come to see or believe that. And I don't want to give them the same amount of years. I mean, that would be totally freaking tedious if I have to wait for <laughs> you to go through all that. And, mm-hmm. and so then it just becomes insistence on dogmas and not process, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. walking people yeah. into a process and being patient. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about process, Paula, because uh, I, it sounds to me as though your recovery experience, much like mine, when I first got into recovery 25 years ago, Nobody was talking about trauma. Trauma was really pretty much unknown, right? I'm grateful for uh, the practical help and the coaching and the assistance and the encouragement that I got from the 12 steps. But uh, that underlying, the, the, the under, underlying issues had not been recognized. And in the meantime, I discovered that when it comes to addiction, I'm pretty talented. I am ambi-addictive. I can find, yeah. you take one thing off the table, I can find another way to numb the pain. Is that for you too? Is there a double meaning to cross addicted? I don't like to claim negativity, but I definitely do have an addictive personality. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I've kind of taken that addictive personality as like, I'm going to crush the next book. I'm going to crush the next podcast. I'm going to go after the next speaking engagement. And so um, my husband and I now have been married 10 years and he finally said the day, other day, he goes, okay, I get it. You're a visionary. I'm not going to shoot down your dreams anymore. I was like, no, even if they're so big that you don't understand them, just listen and let me talk, you know, and just let mm-hmm. God do the rest, but you got to listen to me, you know, but mm-hmm. going back to this addiction piece, and you said that the recovery program really doesn't know about trauma. I want to make sure I get this part of my story in. I stayed in the church very confused for years because people would say, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. But what they didn't know is I was going home cutting my body and I had an eating disorder. I had an eating disorder for 26. Like, even though my drugs and alcohol stopped, the eating Mm -hmm. disorder got way worse. Now, you will see a lot of women in recovery that have eating disorders, but we don't talk about it. And so when Mm -hmm. I speak in public, here's what I get feedback all the time. You put words to my story and the pain that I didn't know that I have. Like I have no shame Mm -hmm. in my story because I know the hell that I've been through and I want you to Mm -hmm. know how to get out. So I quit the drugs and alcohol, but then this eating disorder manifest and then there's still the cutting Mm -hmm. behaviors and things like that. And so here I am sitting in a church pew as a Christian for like 15 years, but I'm not free. And I was so confused because I would go to the altar and I'd get prayed over and people are like, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. But what happened is I hit a rock bottom at 21, but I also hit a rock bottom at 34. I was like, God, if you Mm -hmm. don't heal me of this eating disorder, take me out. I'm done. Mm -hmm. And so what Mm -hmm. happened is I was newly married on my third marriage again. And, um, my husband now was a really good guy and he came from a really good background. He doesn't understand addiction, but after a year of being married to me, he goes, I think you need to get some help. (laughs) (laughs) But, but he was so safe. He's like, I love you. Like quit your job. I just want to be married to you. Quit working, go get help. And I, I was like a single mom then working two to three jobs. And he forced me to like, 
all the, I want to call it residue because see, we come into Mm -hmm. recovery and it's layers. You're not going to just get healed all at once. It's layers. That's Mm -hmm. how trauma healing is. I mean, there's, there's men in recovery and women that were molested when they were little kids and, and they're just feeling something and they're numbing. They don't even, they can't put their numbing to their molestation yet. Okay. They can't Mm -hmm. do it or they Mm -hmm. can't put their porn or sex addiction to I was exposed to this. I mean, my grandpa owned uh, an adult bookstore. My my grandpa had prostitutes that he ran on the streets. I was exposed to it all. Like, if you want to name any addiction, throw it at me. I'm like, yep. But I'm healed. I'm not perfect, but I am healed and and delivered from that stuff today. Do I have to be cautious? Mm-hmm. Do I need to stay in a family of recovery? Absolutely. You know. Mm-hmm. So what I was getting at is that my eating disorder got really bad when I put the drugs and alcohol down and I never mm-hmm. thought I was going to get free. It was so bad. The binge and purge cycle. But what happened mm-hmm. is when I hit rock bottom again at 34 and I was married to this new guy, I explain it as a pot of stew and there's beef and potatoes at the bottom. And I got married to this good guy who's totally calm, insane, his like his family's like educated and everything. And it was like, somebody was stirring the stew and all my stuff came up and I was like, Oh, Mm -hmm. how am I going to hide this? It's all coming up, you know? And I couldn't hide it. (laughs) So I was just like, and he bought me a new car and I, and I wrecked it because not that I was using drugs and alcohol, but I was a mess. I ended up going to therapy, but they weren't a Christian therapist. And I said, Mm -hmm. give me a food plan for my eating disorder. I told this woman, and it was the first time non-Christian counseling, no pastor, not in the church. She says, I won't give you a food plan, but tell me about your childhood. And I was like, well, why the hell do you want to know about my childhood? Like that's Mm -hmm. not, don't talk to me about my childhood. But what happened was memories after memories, after memories came, we would work Mm -hmm. one session through a memory. I would come home. I would just weep. Um, my husband bought me a boxing bag downstairs and my father used to hit mm-hmm. me with two by fours. My father used to choke me in the basement. This may, this may be a little bit real, but I, I'm going here in that, that boxing bag downstairs. I would punch it. Like it was my dad to get this anger out. Like, Oh, sure. I'm yeah. a Christian. I'm a Christian, but I had anger in me and it would be like, you mother effer, you're never going to hurt me again. And just punching this bag home alone, home alone. Mm-hmm. But you want to know the cool part is what is it when you get from alcoholism, your liver gets affected? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Cirrhosis. So my father got hepatitis C from prison and then he got um, his liver. He had liver cancer and he had um, pneumonia in his like body from painkillers. Like he was a mess when he was dying. And my siblings struggle with addiction. They're not healed from trauma, you know? And when I went back in 2017, my 40th birthday, and I'm in trauma therapy like two years now, and my siblings are all bickering and fighting in hospice. It's just like people are still in people's pain pills. I walked in with my recovery and a couple years of trauma therapy. I was like, guys, hey, we just need to all stop. And we need to chill and we need to come together and do what's best for dad right now. And if you guys can't like stop all this right now, just go home and I'll take care of this, you know? And my dad was like a six, four foot, six, four man, very violent. But this is, this is part of healing trauma and recovery. And, and that night, like my dad was already on morphine and, um, 
but he wanted to get up and use the restroom. And so I was having another woman nurse come in and try to help me. And he looked around and he saw that it was me and he wouldn't let us take his pants down. And so I laid him back down. But because of my recovery and my trauma healing, I had to keep a distance from my dad because he still triggered me because my dad didn't know how to talk without cussing and profanity. And the little girl in me would still get triggered like, oh, my God, I'm scared of him. I'm doing something bad. And to protect my recovery, sometimes we got to lead people, places and things. There's a chapter in my book Mm -hmm. why I left because my healing and recovery was important. So when I went back and my dad's laying in the bed and uh, he laid back down, didn't use the restroom. He was trying to open his eyes to see, and he couldn't do that. But I laid his head back down, and I ran my fingers through his coarse hair. And I, you know, I have big feet and hands like my dad. He was a very big man, but I've always wanted to hold his hands, but I was too scared of him. That night in the room, I grabbed his hands and I put my hands through his hair, and I said, "Dad, no matter what you did to me, I never." stopped loving you. And I held his hand and um, I took a picture of it. But that is what recovery is about. That is how we heal. I forgive him for me. But prior to that, down in my basement with a punching bag, I was working through my feelings and I was working through my angers. Here's where we get stuck on addiction, people. Anybody that's listening to this podcast, I always like to say, Your addictions, the feelings you feel won't kill you, but your addiction will. The feelings that you need to feel won't kill you, but your addiction will. And what I had to learn, Nathan and Aaron, was this. We all have a nervous system that's kind of like in our gut. And when we're triggered or we're feeling out of control or we're feeling trauma, all of a sudden we feel out of control. So why do you think I wanted to bend really quick? I, I laid down the alcohol and the drugs, but give me sugar, right? But then, oh, my God, I got to control it and I got to get rid of it. You know, that's what we do. People in recovery, I've learned and, and, I'm, and I'm in recovery. So I can say this. We're just so scared. We're so scared to feel like mm-hmm. yeah. so like I like I started doing side coaching here and there. It's not my thing. Just give me a mic. I love to talk. As you can see, I don't really like to coach, but I always like to tell people I'm coaching. Well, I'm, feeling this. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling this. And I, I was like, good. You're in a good place. And, and if you're feeling yeah. feelings and you don't want to know what it is and you can't put a finger on it, feel it. Go for a walk. Go for a jog. Take a bath. Pick up the phone. Because here's what I want to tell you when you're feeling those feelings. Every day won't be like this. You got to let the mm-hmm. fi- ne- you got to let the negative emotions and trauma process through your body. And when I was healing from my trauma, I had such dark circles in my eyes. I keep pictures. I had so much toxins because trauma gets stored in the body. Why, why don't you think people don't get sober? It's so much easier to scroll the internet and look at porn and this addiction than to have to feel or to feel these feelings of lonely or grieving. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. let's just get real for a moment. Well, let's, let's pause on the emotions because this is something I think is important for our listeners. uh, uh, The ones that, are engaging in what we call the Silas relationship, which is essentially a sponsor. But uh, one of the four questions that we ask guys to look at every day is, what am I feeling? What am I feeling? What am I thinking? What am I doing? What am I thinking of doing? That's what I need to speak out loud and honestly to another man. And that feeling one, 
I mean, I remember my first Silas and having to address that, and it wasn't fun. It was annoying, and we boil it down to five five core feelings so that we can't get nuanced or, I mean, it's essentially just lying. I'm, I'm feeling tired. No, that's not an emotion. What emotion comes with you feeling tired? Does that make you grumpy, which would be angry, or does it, you know, using, I, I was way into, I'd rather give a long explanation then pick one mm-hmm. of these five words. So then that demands the question, why? Why am I so scared to even to myself say, yeah, I'm angry again today. I'm, I'm sad. I'm not actually angry. I just feel really sad. Mm-hmm. But over the years, that became so much easier and, and it was faster. At first, I remember I'd have to sit there and think about it, mm-hmm. where over time, that is a skill that we can learn to check in with ourselves. And then our prayers change because we can actually let God know what we are feeling and what an amazing way to start a prayer. Mm -hmm. It kind of forces vulnerability in the rest. And then after we're honest with ourselves and then we can be honest with God, then we can start being honest with other people. But it's a, it's a pretty critical thing you're talking about. And when we say, I don't want to face it, whether I'm taking a walk facing it, whether I'm beating the hell out of a punching bag. We, uh, or eating the hell out of a pie. Right. Or, one of the two. Yeah. Right. If we, do, yeah. if we don't face it, we can't really go to the, we can't skip that step. Yeah. Nate, mm-hmm. Nate talk to me about emotions. Huh? Oh, it, uh, you know, I was just listening to uh, a, a great book called Deep Survival. Uh, stories of people who've uh, survived and people who haven't, life-threatening situations. And uh, the brilliant guy who's written the book talks about why we make at times, even though we know better, we're survival experts, we do stupid, nonsensical things that wind up hurting us or killing us. And he said it's because there are actually two different decision-making mechanisms in the body. Uh, There is you know, explicit memory and learning that comes from things that we can actually consciously recall. And then there is implicit memory, body memory. Uh, and that, and our body at times will tell us that our survival is at stake and it will make a decision before we are even consciously aware of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that in a tug of war between the head and the heart, between the emotions and rationality, Emotion, that's really precognitive, and that is strong. So if I have got unresolved trauma, so that anytime I bump up against a familiar circumstance or even a familiar smell, some mm-hmm. sensory trigger yeah. that my body responds to, yeah. if the, uh, and that painful memory has not been addressed not been acknowledged, mm-hmm. not been resolved, mm-hmm. uh, then my body is going to make decisions for me before my brain even catches up. Yeah. And Nathan, I agree with you 100%. And so when I couldn't get free from my eating disorder and I struggled for a long time um, and I was really mad at God because I hated being in bondage to that, right? And mm-hmm. exactly what you're explaining and I'm not going to try to explain the medical term, but I was kind of reading a book the other day too. There's like the prefrontal cortex brain, but then mm-hmm. there's another part of the brain that actually reacts out of those triggers and those memories. Right. And you're right. Yeah. Because when I was going through trauma therapy and when the trauma was so great, 
my therapist would literally tell me, go get food. Like if you need that right now, go do it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, um, and this was years, like I went through seven years of therapy and, and, and not that this is a big deal, but just last year I was, I dropped 40 pounds cause I was finally able to, those emotions were calmed enough that mm-hmm. I could make a rash mm-hmm. decision. But when I mm-hmm. was in the binging part and the emotional eating part, um, what God showed me and spoke to me in my prayer meditation was Paula, instead of pulling back, every time you're struggling, bring me in the struggle. Like, okay, God, I'm getting ready to do this and I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling with my food addiction right now, or I'm really struggling with my porn addiction right now, or I'm really, I really want to drink the bottle. Like, what if we keep inviting God into that? I mean, it's going to lessen and lessen because he's the one that's going to help us with that memory or why we're feeling what we're feeling. Yep. But also too, you know, I do think that like, if we need assistance, that trauma therapy is so important because you know, we eventually got to work through like all that stuff so that we could start making like those sound decisions. Because when I had a lot of unaddressed trauma, I constantly felt like out of control. You know, mm-hmm. like I always felt like I was spinning and spiraling, spiraling out of control. And I used to talk like, and, you know, as addicts were like all about us, we don't listen to other people. There's no eye contact. And my sponsor used to have to say, Paula, 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 slow down. I need you mm-hmm. to breathe. I need you to breathe. And today my sponsor says, who am I even talking to? Like, mm-hmm. like you are a completely different person. And yeah. I, I have so much love and respect for her because she accepted me in my darkest moment, you know, and, and she helped me to walk through that. So We've covered a lot of things in this podcast. Like one thing that Aaron had said is like, like you want somebody who's like here to be over here because you're over here, right? But Aaron, mm-hmm. I want to talk about that for a minute. Like, you know, you have these men in your recovery group and you're asking them these five questions. But what do we do with the man that doesn't even trust God yet because he's got father wounds because his father sexually abused him? Like we gotta we gotta work through that before we can even get him to tap into his emotions and trust God. And so go looking back at my layers of recovery. I was in a recovery room for 13 years, just surviving. Like mm-hmm. literally, like I remember feeding my kids macaroni and cheese or like burnt toast. And I'm like, I'm running to a meeting, but if I didn't sit in the presence of that meeting, I wouldn't have been able to even function with my own children. But what mm-hmm. happens is like, we don't, we don't have to explain it in recovery. What do they say? If you keep coming back, the miracle will happen. Yeah, And so I think it's a beautiful thing that you are asking these five questions, because if that if, if the man in recovery keeps coming back, you'll see over time the way he responds to those questions will change. But it's so, let me let me let me speak to that, because this is yeah. I think this is really important. And mm-hmm. a guy just asked this question a couple of weeks ago. He had just started coming to meetings and mm-hmm. was so very honest about. All right. I don't know if this is where I want to be or need to be. Um, and I also don't feel comfortable with the Silas thing yet. Cause I don't even know what this is about. And he received such a beautiful and gentle, uh, invitation. Just come, just be here. It, it, it will make sense when it makes sense and you'll know when you're ready to do the next thing. So I think for guys that are just starting meetings or they're thinking, I don't know if I want to go to these, 
meetings. What are meetings? And they only think in terms of like 12 step or they don't know what that's going to look like. Uh, What you're saying is really important. You just show up and you'll start to see and you'll start to want to participate when you're ready to go a little deeper. And then when you're ready to talk to another individual and answer those kinds of questions, learn how to answer those kinds of questions. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't think it's an innate ability that any of us have to answer introspective questions. Yeah. You know, it's something we learn. Well, yeah, not when we've been estranged from our true self by trauma. Yeah. But also, yeah. too, sometimes um, you may come to a meeting and you may be like, well, I'm not ready for this. But here's who's ready for it when you know that you know that you've hit your bottom. You'll do. You'll go to any length. You'll you'll feed your kid burnt toast and and dry <laughs> macaroni to get to a meeting when you know that you know that you've hit your bottom. You know, mm-hmm. and so for the person listening who's maybe questioning, I don't know if this is for me. I would just strongly encourage you. Just keep coming back. Try try a few meetings. What do you have to lose? You either go back to your mit- misery or you start to find recovery and you start the healing process. You know, there's a saying that time is either going to be like for you or time is going to be against you. And so if you were starting the recovery progress, you're you're working with that time. It's going to be for you, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, Paula Joush, author of Cross Addicted, Breaking Free from Family Trauma and Addiction. How do people find you, see what you're up to, order your book, uh, find out where you're speaking? What, What do they do? Give them a path. Okay, so I have a website, paulajouch.com, and last name is J-A-U-C-H. My book is on Amazon. I just released the audio book. I recorded it myself. You can get that on Amazon. I also have my Pretty podcast with Paula Joush, and Pretty stands for where we face our pain, our rejection, our experiences that led to trauma, and let it be a training ground to find yourself, so... Oh, yeah, yeah. I like right. that. You know what, God? That is nice. God woke me up in my sleep and he said, go write pretty down. And I'm like, why? And then uh-huh. like three weeks later, he gave me that acronym. And I was like, that is just smooth, God. So smooth. Yeah. <laughs> Paula, thank you for hanging out with us. Listeners, check out what she's got going on. And we will be right back with you in a moment here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And we are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back. <laughs> Whoa. I'll, I'll tell you what, that woman's got a lot of energy. She's got a lot of steam. And she, she does. Beautiful things to say. Uh, and, and what a story, Aaron. I know. And it's it, it's so fascinating watching her in, in this place of recovery that she has found in this season mm-hmm. of life and trying to picture the teenage version of her in that chaotic life and the yeah, stuff with yeah. her father, her mother, gangs. So I'm like, this it's, it just isn't striking me as this person. Yeah. So yeah. it's I think that is a testament to what uh, a lot of hard work and miraculous love from God can can do in our lives. Yeah, yeah. And she her story really illustrates the power of acceptance. Uh, uh, the, the deep need for belonging, and really is such a beautiful picture of redemption. Now, 
all of that pain, all of that tragedy is being uh, turned to good as she goes out and puts words. I, I thought it was beautiful when she said that, you know, especially when she tells her story in prisons and places like that, that people tell her that she is putting words to their story. Mm. Uh, I've had that same sensation and it's a wonderful gift to give people and she gets to enjoy it. It's beautiful. Yep. Well, I think that's about all the time we've got uh, today, but make sure you send us your thoughts, your questions, your whatever uh, to pirate monk podcast at gmail.com. And remember we've got an upcoming annual retreat in Texas. Yeah, Sky Ranch, the beginning of November, just yesterday, Justin sent me pictures of their high ropes course and a zip line. So, you know, I at first I was not sure what these were pictures of, but I, I love me a high ropes course. Uh, <laughs> and then I found out that's what it was. And it, yeah, it yeah. looks fun. I, I'm looking forward to hanging out in Texas. Oh, it's going to be a great time at Sky Ranch. And uh, Adam Young will be speaking and uh, it's going to be one hell of a celebration our 10th annual i am still retreat. trying to figure that i tried to go back in my mind to uh yeah, 10. yeah, I, yeah. it's just a blur to me man yeah, uh yeah. but if you want to check it out if you want to get pre-registered you can put down deposit and get yourself signed up you don't have to pay for the whole thing right now you can simply go. I don't know where they're supposed to go, Nate. I don't know this stuff. Just, just go to samsonsociety.org or samsonsociety.com and scroll down the page until you see the banner for the 2023 Samson Summit. Yes. God's banner over you is love, but Samson's banner will get you signed up for the annual retreat. There you go. Well, Aaron, I guess that does it for this week. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.